So you can see the title of the sermon on the slides. Uh, I put the word fasting on this very first slide, and that might have been a really bad idea, a good way to, for people to emotionally check out, like, that's not my thing. Um, I've got, you know, 20, 25 minutes to sit through the rest of this talk. But the reality is fasting is a central component of Jesus' teaching today as we continue our journey through Matthew. And, um, and there are misunderstandings that abound and, and, and intimidation that abounds probably for most of us when it comes to that topic. So I just want to start by acknowledging that and saying, please, please don't check out. I'm not expecting anyone to change in the next 30 minutes necessarily. God might do that. But more than anything, my hope, my goal is that this would plant a seed which the Lord would grow over the next uh, 30 weeks, 30 months, even 30 years. So just breathe, calm down. Um, if fasting kind of wound you up, the thought of it. And I- I'd even encourage you to imagine yourself picking a delicious fruit off of the tree that grows from the discipline of fasting in your life. And yes, you can eat that fruit. It's, it's meant to be enjoyed. It's, it's a good thing um, that, that produces enjoyment of God and relationship with God in, in deeper ways. So uh, since there's misunderstanding around fasting, I just want to start with kind of a basic overview of what fasting is. Fasting, according to the dictionary, you'll just find abstaining from food. And I think that's why we kind of look at it like, ooh, I like food. I don't want to abstain from it. Uh, so we kind of look at fasting under or through the lens of intimidation or something that's good, but not quite something we'd like to have in our normal life. Uh, I think a better definition is to give up food or something good for a time, a, a temporary time in order to focus on something else. So even if... Uh, even if fasting, oh, thanks. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, so, so a better definition of fasting is to give up something for a time in order to focus on something else. Uh, a medical fast, for example, you give up food a little bit so that your blood work can come back better. Um, skipping a meal on accident, therefore, is not really fasting. I've done that before and I've thought, man, I wish I would have fasted today because that was easy. I was just so busy, I you know, didn't eat that meal. But that kind of misses the point because you're, you're, you're giving it up, but you're, it's supposed to be intentional for something better. Um, so I just also want to say, just to you know, kind of round out this picture of fasting, the Bible really does call food good. And so God is not some cosmic killjoy you know, asking us to give up these things uh, just because he doesn't want to see us happy and delighting in this life. Um, No, the same God who encourages us to fast, or I should say invites us to fast temporarily at times, also encourages us to feast. So there are all sorts of different ways to fast, different kinds of fasting. And so that's another, I think, misunderstanding that we should just get out of the way is that Fasting is not eating today. Or um, for a while, I thought in order to fast, you also had to give up uh, liquids. And that's just not normal with most fasts. So um, no matter what you give up, whether it's internet, Facebook, Netflix, food, TV, it's all given up for a time in order to pursue something better. 
And in this case, it's in order to pursue relationship with God. So the purpose of fasting, I would say, is actually feasting, not intaking food, but consuming the goodness of God, turning your attention to him. Because fasting is a whole lot more about what you gain than what you lose, the perspective on God and your life that you gain. So as we look at our text, um, you'll see that I've switched the order, uh, fasting for Christ, who is seeking sinners. Uh, I've switched that order uh, around, but we're going to just go in the order of the text as we unpack it. So our passage today is Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9 through 17. And Matthew writes, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a physician. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." So we're going to follow this passage by starting, like I said, we're going to start with where it starts, Christ seeking sinners. And this is a picture of what Jesus is doing. If you've been here the last two weeks, we've used this picture uh, to, to, to model what I believe Matthew is trying to communicate through the stories of Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves, his authority over the demoniac. And then last week, we saw Jesus heal a paralytic and forgive that man's sins. First, he forgave the sins, then he healed him. And that kind of cued us into this temple imagery, which the Old Testament, like Jewish understanding would say, heaven and earth meet at the temple. That's where God's presence is made manifest. And so Jesus is like this temple walking around. And as you can see, he goes into the, the, the sinful chaos of this world and this age, earth, in, in our picture, and he says, sup, right? <laughs> I, I think it's a great picture of what's happening in our story today. He goes to Matthew's workplace and says, sup, Matthew? And Matthew, we don't get a lot of details here. This is the author of the gospel, the, the gospel of Matthew. He injects his testimony in like, what, two verses, and uh, Matthew's story is just a total guy version. Next slide. What a dude, right? Like Jesus came to my workplace, said, follow me. I got up and followed him. I'm just like, only a guy would tell a testimony that way. Um, 
nothing about why, why did I leave? What was I feeling? What was going on inside of me? Like, what was the conversation? Was there a conversation at all? Um, And I know like, this is a generalization, like not all guys tell a story that way, but you know, whenever someone gets engaged, and this is definitely true of me when Rose and I got engaged, people were like, oh, tell the story, tell the story. And I'd be like, yeah, we, we had dinner, um, asked her to marry me, she said yes. Oh, and yeah, I got down on a knee too. <laughs> you know, it's, we're, just, we're just not that detail-oriented, not great, I, I'm not a great storyteller. So, um, you know, if that generalization doesn't apply to you and you're a guy, that's good. That's a really good thing. That means you're a better communicator and more interesting to listen to tell stories. But uh, this is just, you know, that's how Matthew tells his story right there. Verse nine. I just think it's fascinating. But I do think Matthew is, you know, inspired by the, the spirit of God. And I think he's packing a lot in that little story. So, for example, the temple imagery we just covered, it's almost like he's really saying the temple of Yahweh, God's very personal presence, came to my booth. He entered my office, my workplace. That is where I met him. That's where my story of following him started. And then the the gospel doesn't make this explicit, but most scholars believe that this party that Jesus attends after going to Matthew's workplace was at Matthew's house and Matthew's colleagues were there, right? His co-workers. And uh, Matthew, in case you haven't heard or haven't quite connected these dots, Matthew and the other tax collectors, they were not well liked by their Jewish neighbors because they were sellouts. They followed the Roman government who was, Uh, in charge of the land where the Jews lived. They they followed the Roman government rather than holding fast to their Jewish identity. And they decided, you know, we could really make a profit. We could make a a pretty penny, a good living by just, you know, collecting taxes for the Romans and then collecting more for us on top of that. And so the, the Jews didn't like the Romans because they were under their occupation. Um, But Matthew and the others you know, they, they were kind of viewed as traitors to, to the Jewish uh, pride and, and Jewish people. So uh, at the site of this cultural faux pas, where Jesus, who is also a Jew, is eating with these traitors who have, you know, kind of sold out their allegiances in order to make a good living. Uh, at the site of this cultural faux pas, the Pharisees, they didn't ask Jesus, they kind of snuck around and asked Jesus' friends, why does he do this? And Jesus overheard and he interjects in verse 12. He said, but when Jesus, or Matthew writes, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor, but those who are sick have that need. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I just think it's crystal clear why Jesus is at a house full of sinners. It's because they're honest about their condition. On the surface, these people were not well liked. They were perceived to be dishonest. And they often were dishonest in their dealings. 
Zacchaeus, you know, he, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to give back more than what I took because he acknowledged in his repentance, he acknowledged I was dishonest, but beneath the surface, these people were honest about their soul. They were sick. They were sinful. They had nothing good to bring to God and they knew it. So they were interested in mercy while the Pharisees, who were perceived to be the most morally upright people, they were actually dishonest about their soul. They were dishonest about the condition of their inner life. They were content with letting everyone think that what they saw on the outside, this upright, good image, was what was going on inside of them. That's who they actually were. And Jesus, he does seek sinners. But it only, it's always only been the honest who find him. The people who know they have a need, they know that they're sick and need a doctor. Jesus said, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. And don't be confused. Jesus is all for righteousness. But his righteousness is not a veneer. It's not like those wood products that just have a little... You know, basically a piece of, a sticker, like a piece of tape that's stuck on top to make it look like really good solid wood. That's a veneer. Jesus wants the real thing. True righteousness down to the deepest parts of us. And I think when, when I read this statement, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That, that's a statement that should really force us to think. Because the whole thing about the sick need and a doctor, and Jesus came calling sinners, not the righteous, that makes sense. But I think this is a key, a key part of his teaching, that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And you can do the same thing. You can read your Bible Offering God a sacrifice versus reading your Bible out of a posture of mercy. It's the same action. You can come to church. You can serve. It's a sacrifice. And definitely sacrifice isn't all bad. But Jesus saying, I desire mercy. He just gets to the heart of the matter. And I think the essence of this statement is this. Jesus is saying, I am more interested in the healing that I can bring to your life than whatever you have to contribute to my cause and my purpose. And hey, if you refuse treatment, that's your choice, you know? But in this, in this statement of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Jesus is actually pulling from the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6, 6, and the story of Hosea in a nutshell is God's people are cheating on him. God's people are being unfaithful. And so how can you have mercy? How can you have loving kindness without being honest? Hey, yeah, I, I'm cheating. Without saying, I'm, I'm being unfaithful. You, you have to be honest. That's, that's, that's a prerequisite for mercy. That's something you just have to have in order to really pursue mercy. I got lost in my notes here. Just a minute. Too many pages. So Jesus says, go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And undoubtedly, the Pharisees already had strong ideas about what it meant. But I think the motive is the difference. You can do, you can do something like give or serve or come to church or befriend others out of sacrifice, like, God, look at all the good things I'm doing. Or you can do it out of mercy. God, I have nothing good to bring you, but I want you. I need you in my life. And Jesus, in this, in this story with Matthew and his friends at his house, Jesus is showing how he responds to honesty. He, he, he doesn't make it okay that like these tax collectors are taking advantage of people. He, he's not you know, saying that's okay at all. But he, he's engaging them. He, kn- he knows that nothing's going to change without engaging them. And as I thought about this, this whole idea of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and I thought about us as a church and just kind of the, the image that people have of Christians in our culture, um, it's, this, this came to mind. Uh, people have said before of Christians uh, that they're like, we don't drink, smoke, or chew, nor do we go with people who do. Ra- raise your hand if you've heard that line before. You've heard that? Yeah. Yeah. And I just think, you know, that's just a pharisaical mindset that we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with people who do. Because the Pharisees' mindset is, yeah, you can come to us, but we don't go to you. Like, if you want to come and stop your drinking, smoking, and chewing, then you're welcome. But what Jesus does here is, instead, he moves towards anyone who's interested in him. Anyone with any interest in moving towards Jesus, acknowledging, hey, I'm a sinner, you find commonality there. You find belonging with the rest of sinners. So I also think there's this side of it. Rather than, that, that's kind of the external side. Um, there's this internal side. I think we're much more prone to move towards people when we acknowledge our own personal need for mercy. And so I'm convinced that those two are connected. When, when we move towards people um, and we're available and open to people who want to move towards Jesus, it's, it's because we understand, like Martin Luther said, we're all beggars. We're all beggars telling another beggar where he found bread. And it's such a temptation. I've seen it in my own heart that once we find the bread maker, that we think, I'm not a beggar anymore. But we are. And so we must connect with people, both in this room, in this community of faith, and outside of it. We must connect with people as beggars, telling other beggars where to find bread. Because just because we found the bread maker doesn't mean we're not a beggar. Forgiven sinners are still sinners. And so I just think to adopt that mentality of one beggar telling another beggar where he found, found bread is, is essential. And, and here's my last application on this first part. There's two parts to this message. So we're almost done with this first part. Matthew's story, Matthew's story where he basically said, Christ came to my workplace. I just want to invite you to believe that that could happen. Even if you don't necessarily have a workplace and you're a stay-at-home mom or your workplace is kind of abnormal, do you believe that could happen? 
and, and don't necessarily, you know, expect to go out tomorrow um, and see a little acorn turn into an oak tree overnight <laughs> at your workplace. But I just encourage you to plant that seed. Believe that that could happen. Water it and, and watch it grow over, over months and years. And maybe God does do something extraordinary in your workplace this week. But I think that's a great application from, from this passage of Scripture. To believe that, that God, just like that, that, uh, uh, that model showed us, that he could come and say what's up <laughs> in the midst of our ordinary chaotic lives. So back to the story as we enter part two. John the Baptist's disciples were wondering, why do Jesus' followers get to go to the best parties? And we don't. So let's read it again. The disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus. They came straight to Jesus, which is different than the Pharisees who kind of, you know, tried to slither around Jesus. The disciples of John the, Bab- John the Baptist came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a, sh- a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and, the, the, and a tear is worse. Like, the, the hole is worse. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. So John's disciples, again, they're asking Jesus directly, why don't we, or why, why, don't, why don't you all fast like we do? And Jesus' examples, we don't really connect to, I think, the patches and the wineskins the same way that the original audience would, but I think we can connect to this. It just doesn't make sense. That's Jesus' answer. It just wouldn't make sense for them to fast while I'm right here. If you're trying to patch a hole in one of your favorite pieces of clothes, it wouldn't make sense to do it in a way that makes that hole worse. If you're trying to preserve, like if you go to a restaurant and you can't finish your plate and you're trying to preserve, you know, like that, that plate that you enjoyed so much, but you don't want to overeat, you want to save it for later. If, if you're trying to preserve it, but you preserve it in such a way that ruins it later, why would you, why would you do that? It just doesn't make sense. The commonality between all three stories the one of the, the, the wedding. Like if you go to a wedding for a friend and you're just sitting there kind of moby the whole time, like what's your problem? <laughs> There's something wrong. This is a, a moment of joy. Jesus is saying, it just makes sense that you don't fast while I'm here with you. Oh, this is my favorite. This is my favorite illustration actually of the whole day. So I got to use it. I almost lost it. Uh, if you pack your lunch, right? If you pack your lunch and you pack a banana, in your lunch, unless you want everything banana flavored, it's just going to like ruin the whole thing. It's, so it just wouldn't make sense to pack a banana there unless you want everything flavored like banana. Okay, some people can resonate with that. But the commonality is that we all do what makes sense to us. And just because it makes sense to us doesn't actually mean it makes the most sense, but Jesus is saying it'll make sense for them to fast when I'm gone. That will be an expression of their longing for me. For my presence 
in a way that they just don't have, in a, in a way that they long for the reuniting that will happen at the end. So I do want you to walk away today desiring just a little bit more, desiring to experience God through fasting. And I just want to say, I recognize that might not be the next step for you, but I, I, I really don't want fasting to be intimidating or like this hyper-spiritual exercise. And maybe for some people, like, you know, a traditional fast of food, like you just can't do for medical reasons, and that's okay. But I just want to encourage you, like, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey or in your spiritual training program, uh, take the next step. Tend the oak tree so that you can enjoy its shade. But no matter where you're at too, just know that this principle, this principle applies to all spiritual practice. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. So if you, if you walk out of here and you plan to fast, I don't know, Thursday or later this week, uh, it's, it's going to be painful. <laughs> no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Later on, it produces a harvest. And so, whether the next step for you is finding a church home, that can be painful at the time. Or if you found a church home, like serving in some capacity, that can be painful. If the next step for you is like learning to embrace God's mercy and opening yourself up to people through confessing sin on a regular basis, that can be painful at the time. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness. An acorn, it takes a long time to produce the shade of an oak tree. And so all of this that I'm talking about, this is effort, not earning. Spiritual growth, it doesn't, it doesn't change our relationship with God at all. Spiritual growth happens when your relationship with God changes you. And so I want to summarize the second section, this last section, as fasting for Christ. Because I believe the essence of his teaching is that we fast for him. And I understand, like, you can fast for direction. You can fast on behalf of friends that you're praying for. But ultimately, all fasting is because we want Jesus. We are giving up something good temporarily for a greater good. It is to pursue him. And even if we don't get what we're asking for, if we get him, we get what we want more than anything. And I, I want to conclude by kind of connecting this to what Jesus said earlier. I know for me, we tend to think of doing things like fasting. Man, we're really showing God. We're really showing other people how good we are. That, that's just a temptation in my heart. What a great sacrifice. What a great person. Wow. But remember, God desires mercy, not sacrifices. So continually check your motives as you train for godliness. But don't wait for your motives to totally be pure. Otherwise, you're going to be waiting a long time. All a person's ways seem pure to him, Proverbs says, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So when we combine these two big ideas, fasting for Christ, who is seeking sinners, I, I think we find that if Jesus is moving towards sinners, and if we're seeking him, we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves led into lostness as part of being with Jesus. And, and when we are led into lostness, or like into a lost world apart from Christ, we have something really significant in common 
with those people. We too are sinners. But we're learning to want Jesus more than anything. We're training towards that, in, towards that end. So when you fast, that spiritual training will strengthen your love for God and your love for people. And so in, in conclusion, no matter where you're at today, uh, I just want to encourage you to throw yourself on the mercy of God. And fasting is one way to do that. Prayer is another way to do that. Confession of sin is another way to do it. But uh, yeah, no matter if this is the day that someone first meets Jesus or whether this is the last Sunday of someone's life, just throwing yourself at the mercy of God um, is what we all have in common. We're all beggars looking for bread. Let's pray together. King Jesus, I think about the mighty demonstrations of power that you did um, in these chapters that we're studying in Matthew 8 and 9. And yet here, um, you just encourage us to come to you as we are and to recognize that the only people um, who don't really get to experience you are those who don't really connect to their need for you. And I confess relying on my knowledge of you, about you, more than personally pressing into my need for you. I pray, I pray that we would be a people who connects to others as a fellow sinner. And that by your activity in us, through us, we could lead many, many beggars who are starving to the bread maker the bread of life.